This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Located in Cunningham Township in Luzerne County, the community of Pond Hill presents a picturesque appearance. Nestled in a valley between the Susquehanna River and Lily Lake, this community has been a quiet, peaceful place for most of its history. However, the serenity was broken one July evening in 1921 when a raging fire destroyed the home of Reverend Felix Nowak. When the smoke cleared, the charred remains of Reverend Nowak his wife and her three children were found in a smoldering debris. The fire shocked the Pond Hill community, but the events which followed shocked them even more. It was soon discovered that the blaze had been set intentionally, and an examination of the bodies proved that Reverend Nowak had been shot four times before the house was burned. On Sunday evening, July 24th, Felix Nowak and his family slumbered peacefully in their beds, in the upstairs of a two-story farmhouse they shared with the Valoroso family. On the first floor was a chapel where Reverend Nowak, a former Catholic priest with the Diocese of Scranton, held services in Polish. The second floor contained five rooms, two of which were occupied by the Nowak family, while the remaining three rooms were occupied by the family of Frank Valoroso. It was sometime around 1913 when Nowak purchased the property, but three years later, he decided to sell it. It was Frank Valoroso who agreed to buy the farmhouse for the sum of $5,000, which was to be paid off in monthly installments. Until the debt was settled, the Nowaks would continue to live on the premises, and Felix's name would remain on the deed. By 1921, Valoroso had paid just $900 to the Reverend, and the buyer's erratic payment history caused no small amount of friction to develop between the two households. Adding to the headache was the fact that there was only one bathroom, which both families had to share, and only one exit from the second floor. In order to leave either upstairs apartment, it was necessary to pass through the bedroom of the other. The families quarreled frequently over this arrangement, and it was only a matter of time before things came to a boil. Reverend Nowak and his family had spent Sunday evening visiting friends in Mokinaqua, five miles down the road, leaving to return to Pond Hill at around nine o'clock in the evening. 
His friend was reluctant to see him go, but Nowak remarked that unless he got home early, Frank Valoroso would lock the door. Nowak made it home just in time to prevent getting locked out of his own property. Pond Hill was deep asleep when the fire broke out sometime around 3 o'clock in the morning. And when neighbors awoke just before sunrise and smelled the smoke in the air, they raced to the Nowak farm only to realize that it was too late. By 7 o'clock, the fire had burned itself out, and even though nobody could find the Nowaks, there was little cause for concern. The Valoroso family had not only made it out of the building safely, but they had managed to save all their furniture, which had been carried outside and placed on the ground. The Valorosos also managed to salvage 14 large barrels of wine and whiskey from the basement. Surely, the Reverend and his family had ample time to flee the burning building, but where had they gone? This was a question that was on everyone's mind, until a neighbor noticed something sticking out of the heap of smoldering rubble that looked like a human arm. Neighbors immediately began to sift through the pile of debris, and before long they located what remained of Reverend Noah, his wife, Frances, and their three daughters, Angelina, age 7, Beatrice, age 5, and Lucy, who was just two months of age. All five bodies were found in a pile, indicating that they had never made it out of their bedroom alive. When one of the locals realized that a feat such as removing heavy furniture and wine barrels from a burning house would have required multiple trips up and down the lone staircase, suspicion immediately fell upon the deadbeat homebuyer, Frank Valoroso. On the scene, the Valorosos pleaded their innocence. A teenage stepson, Rocco Chiquillo, claimed that he came home at 11.30 the night before and immediately went to bed, while Frank claimed that he and the rest of his family had retired for the night between 8.30 and 9 o'clock. But if this were true, then who got out of bed to unlock the door for Felix Nowak? Nowak would have just departed from Mokinaqua at this time, and would have arrived at Pond Hill long before the teenage boy came home. Things were not adding up. To even the untrained eye, this appeared to be a premeditated act. The bodies were taken away by Deputy Coroner Benjamin C. Cook, who soon arrived on the scene. Watchmen assigned by State Trooper Karn were stationed around the perimeter of the property to stand guard, until the county detectives, Powell, Bachman, Gwilliam, and Allardyce, arrived. Frank Valoroso was taken into custody and detained at the Wyoming barracks of the state police while evidence was gathered. This outraged Frank's wife, who immediately summoned an attorney, George Ritchie, who had Valoroso transferred from the barracks to the county jail, presumably so he wouldn't say anything incriminating in the presence of law enforcement. As the detectives gathered evidence, it was the deputy coroner's examination of Felix Nowak's body that produced the most damning proof that Valoroso had murdered the reverend. Four bullet wounds were found in the reverend's body, and Nowak's safe, which he had always kept in his bedroom, was found buried under the floor of the barn, establishing a possible motive of robbery. It was a heavy safe, which meant that there must have been an accomplice. In a tragic twist of irony, Detectives also found six fire extinguishers in the rubble. According to friends, Felix was deathly afraid of fire, 
and once had a premonition that his family would perish in an inferno. Rocco Chiquillo, the 17-year-old stepson of Frank Valoroso, was brought in for questioning and pleaded ignorance. Frank's wife, however, spoke freely about the fire when she paid a visit to her husband at the Wyoming barracks before he was transferred to the county jail. According to police records, Mrs. Valoroso claimed that she had gone to bed at around 8.30 the night of the fire and was awakened around 3 in the morning by the crying of her infant daughter. Smelling smoke, she roused the rest of her family and escaped. But when asked why she hadn't awakened the Noaks, she said that it was her belief that they weren't home. I saw Reverend Felix Noak and his family go out in an automobile, she said. Despite the bumbled alibis and misleading statements given by the Valoroso family, there was a glimmer of hope in the case against Frank Valoroso. It was an established fact that Felix Noak always carried a revolver with him, thereby raising the possibility that the wounds found on his body could have been the result of cartridges exploding in the fire. Witnesses recalled hearing what sounded like firecrackers in the middle of the night, but assumed that it was just some neighborhood kids making mischief. But if the fire had caused the cartridges to explode, why were there no wounds on the other family members? Felix could have fallen asleep with his revolver in his vest pocket or trousers, but he also stored a number of extra cartridges in his desk. Why was no one else wounded by the shrapnel? On Wednesday, July 28th, Shikshini Police Chief Lawrence Ryan obtained a chilling confession from Frank Valoroso's teenage stepson after hours of intense interrogation. According to the confession, Rocco Chiquillo returned home at around 11 o'clock and noticed that all the furniture had been moved out of the Valoroso living quarters, with the exception of the beds. Sometime later, he saw Frank Valoroso leave his room fully dressed, cross the hallway, and enter the bedroom of Reverend Nowak. When he came out of the room, Frank told his stepson to go to the basement and bring up three gallons of gasoline and three gallons of kerosene. Rocco obeyed and watched as his stepfather poured the liquid onto the floor and walls. When this was done, Frank ordered Rocco to set the house on fire. While Rocco was giving his confession, fingerprint experts were examining a safe that had been found buried in the barn. Joseph Gallus of the H. H. Roth locksmith shop opened the safe and state police detectives examined the contents, which included a number of documents written in Polish, insurance policies, a marriage certificate, and a will showing that Felix Nowak planned to turn over the entirety of his estate to his sister and his wife. There was no money, jewelry, or other valuables inside the safe. One interesting detail to emerge from sifting through the rubble was the discovery of an illegal still which had been kept in a downstairs room adjacent to the chapel. Police couldn't determine who the moonshiner had been, though the Valorosos had saved several whiskey and wine barrels from the basement before the inferno. Detectives were also able to reconstruct the final hours of the Noaks. At two o'clock, Felix and his family had taken a drive to Lily Lake, where they had spent the afternoon, then traveled to Mokinaqua to visit friends. 
He was last seen turning into his driveway at 9.30, approximately five hours before the fire was set. The preliminary hearing was held in front of Judge Fuller on Monday, August 1st. As a no-nonsense judge, Fuller demanded that the testimony be as brief as possible. He wanted the facts, and only the facts. Dr. Benjamin Cook testified that he had found four bullet wounds in Felix's body. Of these wounds, two were penetration wounds in the right side of the chest, which passed through the right lung. Another bullet had passed through the center of the chest. The lungs, according to Dr. Cook, showed hemorrhages indicating that Reverend Nowak was alive at the time the wounds were inflicted. The Scranton Times-Tribune reported that, in addition to the gunshot wounds, Felix's head was found hanging by a shred and that his limbs showed signs of having been chopped with an axe. As for the other victims, they had been burned so badly that it was impossible to tell if they had been murdered before the fire was set. Later, this would raise a curious legal question. If Felix had been killed before his wife, his sister, Josephine Lasuka, would be the sole beneficiary. But if Mrs. Nowak died first, her relatives would be the ones to administer the family estate. Rocco's testimony mirrored what he had said in his confession, but real damage was inflicted when he was questioned about the safe. According to Rocco Chiquillo, the stable and barn had been used only by the Valorosos. Felix Nowak and his family rarely set foot inside. Valoroso was charged with murder and remanded to prison to await trial. As for Rocco, he was held as a material witness for the Commonwealth until August 23rd, when a grand jury would be convened. Outside the courthouse, Mrs. Valoroso made various statements to the press, claiming that her husband was innocent. She claimed that, on the night of the fire, she had heard an automobile outside the home, but did not get out of bed to investigate. Her theory was that it was some enemy or enemies of the priest who had paid a visit to the home and set it ablaze. Oddly, this detail was one she had neglected to tell detectives during her questioning. It was almost as if she just thought of it on the spot. August 23, 1921, was a busy day at the Luzerne County Courthouse. Besides the Valoroso case, there were three other murder cases for the grand jury to decide, and a dozen manslaughter cases. It wasn't until August 26th that the grand jury rendered its verdict, indicting Frank Valoroso on multiple charges of arson and first-degree murder. The trial date was set for September 12th. On the morning of September 12th, Valoroso appeared before Judge Fuller to enter his plea of not guilty. He was clean-shaven, though sloppily dressed in a pair of worn-out trousers. The rest of the day was spent selecting a jury, and on Tuesday the proceedings got underway with District Attorney James presenting the Commonwealth's case. Behind Frank Valoroso sat his wife and three of their four children. Their infant daughter had passed away since Frank's arrest, an event which Mrs. Valoroso attributed to worry over her father's fate. It was a dubious claim, as the other older children displayed little interest in the proceedings, seemingly unaware of the gravity of the situation. The only surprise of the day came 
when Rocco Cicillo took the stand, and contradicted his own confession when he denied seeing his father douse the building with flammable liquid. He even claimed that his father had attempted to wake the Noaks, but abandoned them in order to save his own young children. As for his confession, Rocco claimed that it had been given under duress after Chief Ryan of Shikshini had given him the third degree. When Chief Ryan took the stand, he refuted this accusation. The prosecution rebounded strongly the following day, however, when testimony was given by George Buzzer of Reading, who was serving time at the Eastern Penitentiary. The men had shared a cell together after Valoroso's arrest, and Frank had confided to Buzzer that he had ordered his stepson to pour gasoline throughout the home. I guess I'm in for it now that I hear my stepson has turned against me, Valoroso allegedly said to Buzzer. The following day, Frank Valoroso took the stand in his own defense. During his two hours of testimony, he rebutted the claims against him, though on cross-examination was at a loss to explain why he said that he hadn't purchased kerosene or gasoline in three years, when a Pond Hill merchant said that he had purchased fuel just a few days before the fire. It took the jury just three hours to find Frank Valoroso guilty of murder. The verdict was read at 3.30 on the afternoon of September 16th, and with the words, guilty of first-degree murder, Valoroso's face turned a greenish pallor. He seemed to stagger as police led him out of the courtroom, urging his attorney to file an appeal. Headlines were made a few weeks later, when it was revealed that the Commonwealth's star witness, George Buzzer, might have fabricated his story in order to win favor with the warden of the Eastern Penitentiary and earn an early parole. Evidence supporting this allegation found its way into the hands of Valoroso's attorney, George Ritchie, who in turn presented it to Judge Fuller. This evidence was a statement from a Luzerne County inmate named Theodore Cadwalter, who claimed that Buzzer had already made up his story before Valoroso arrived at the jail. According to Cadwalter, Buzzer had read a newspaper article about the Pond Hill fire and had made up his mind to use it to his own advantage, even if it sent the other man to the electric chair. In November, Judge Fuller refused a new trial for Valoroso, on the grounds that Cadwalter's allegations, even if true, were not enough to warrant such an extraordinary remedy. The case against Valoroso had been strong enough even without George Buzzer's testimony. In his decision, Fuller wrote, We may now say with the greatest confidence, as a succinct and sufficient summary of the case, that if Noack, whose body was found in the ruins, came to his death by criminal agency, that is, by being shot, the defendant did the shooting, and therefore committed murder of the first degree. All that remained was sentencing and Valoroso's conviction carried an automatic sentence of death by electrocution. Judge Fuller pronounced sentence on November 28th, and a dramatic scene ensued when Valoroso, trembling and haggard, clutched a crucifix, raised his hands, and called upon God to send a spirit of his son into the courtroom to perform a miracle. I lost everything in the fire and am now a ruined man, he screamed. There will be no one to look after my wife and children. Judge Fuller was unmoved by Valoroso's display, 
though attorney George Ritchie vowed to take his appeal to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Ritchie argued his case for a new trial for his client before the state Supreme Court on January 16, 1922, in Philadelphia, by raising a question of law that had not been addressed during the murder trial. During the trial, one of the pieces of evidence used to convict Valoroso was a letter from Reverend Nowak's attorney ordering Valoroso to make a payment on the house or face eviction. This, the prosecution had argued, was sufficient to establish a motive for the murder. However, Ritchie argued that the letter from the attorney had been addressed to both Mr. and Mrs. Valoroso, and what if Frank's wife had read the letter but had never brought it to her husband's attention? This would eliminate revenge as the motive, and without a motive there would not have been a conviction. Ritchie's strategy worked. On March 6th, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court granted Valoroso a new trial. The second trial for the murder of Reverend Felix Nowak opened on May 29, 1922, once again with Judge Fuller presiding. However, it wasn't until May 31st that the first points were scored for the prosecution, when Pond Hill resident Irving Schlosser took the stand. It was Schlosser who had been the first to find the bodies in the rubble, after he told Valoroso that he thought he smelled burning flesh. Must be the chickens, Valoroso had said in response. When Schlosser asked where the reverend was, and none of the Valorosos seemed to know, Schlosser grabbed a pitchfork and jumped into the cinders and rubble. Only then did he discover the five bodies. The prosecution went for broke, with District Attorney James calling a steady stream of witnesses who claimed to have heard Valoroso making threats against the reverend. Attorneys Slattery and Goldberg for the defense raised objections to every scrap of evidence, and in this manner the trial carried on like a hard-fought tennis match. But the highlight of the retrial came on June 1st, when the prosecution entered into evidence the remains of Reverend Felix Nowak, which had been kept in formaldehyde and stored in jars inside a metal box. Examining a glass jar containing the dead preacher's lungs, Dr. Hugo testified that the bullet wounds had been made prior to death, pointing out that there were no signs of smoke inhalation or asphyxiation. Quite simply, Noak was dead before the flames ever reached him. Dr. Cook and Dr. Hart spent five hours on the stand reiterating this point, and things began to look very bleak for the defense. The only bright spot that day came when Rocco, the stepson, was called to the stand, but was nowhere to be found. Apparently, Rocco Chiquillo felt that skipping town was his best option. The turning point in the retrial came on June 5th, when Dr. Jan Jiglin, a pathologist at the city hospital testifying for the defense, gave a slideshow presentation proving that Reverend Nowak was alive when a fire was set, but that he was never shot. One picture showed the priest's body covered in a reddish-brown substance, which he said were the red corpuscles of blood. If the body had been dead before the fire, the corpuscles would not have shown up. With the courtroom darkened, the pathologist showed slide after slide, showing how the chest injury did not completely puncture the lung. This proved the injuries had most likely been the result of falling timbers and other debris, rather than the result of a gunshot. On June 7th, 
Frank Valoroso walked out of the Luzerne County Courthouse a free man. To this day, no one can be 100% certain how Felix Nowak and his family met their demise. Were they murdered before the house burned to the ground? Or had Frank Valoroso's wife, Grace, been telling the truth all along when she said that some enemy of the Reverend had paid a visit to the house shortly before the fire was set? Perhaps the answer to this mystery can be found in the haunting of Pond Hill. In August of 1922, one year and a month after the fatal fire, a man named Frank Pantalone, who lived near the scene of the tragedy, reported that he had seen a ghostly figure prowling in the ruins of the Nowak home, which had remained virtually untouched since the fire. Though some claim this ghost was nothing more than someone's white mule rooting for something to eat, other Pond Hill locals reported seeing the same apparition, the ghost of a priest digging as if looking for something, perhaps the vital piece of evidence that would bring his killer to justice. Pantalone and others also reported seeing mysterious lights in the orchard near the foundations of the farmhouse. The August 24, 1922 edition of the Mount Carmel Item reports, In plain view, all too plain, so silent that it appeared ominous, the ghost of the priest has been seen digging in the cellar for hours at a time. Pantalone is absolutely certain it was the form of the priest, for he recognized him. Pantalone had occasion to visit the farm, known as the Thomas Farm, and was returning in the early evening at dusk, when, as he looked into the cellar, he saw the white form of a man digging in the pile of sifted ashes that was left by detectives in their search for clues in a supposed murder and burning of the priest and his family. He was right there, I could see him, declared Pantalone. He had a fork. I was scared and started away, but I looked over my shoulder and could still see him digging as I ran. The article went on to state that Pantalone was so sure of what he had seen that he once walked two miles out of his way to avoid walking past the Nowak house. And that was in broad daylight. The article continues. Constable Craigle, who lives near the Nowak place, has seen the lights appear mysteriously at night among the trees in the grass-grown orchard above the house. Few approach the place. It is left as it was upon the day of the fire, with all the mute evidence of life remaining. Some caps and wraps of the children who met such untimely deaths are still there, and the ruins untouched. The few visitors who have been to the scene point out the fact that grass or weeds have failed to grow in the basement, where the wood ashes and litter would form a natural place for the rank growth that is everywhere else apparent about the farm. The Valorosos moved to Binghamton, New York after the acquittal. Frank Valoroso died in 1954, while his wife, Grace, passed away in Binghamton in January of 1962. They are buried at Mount Greenwood Cemetery in Trucksville, Luzerne County. If you enjoyed this podcast, look for my latest book, Pennsylvania Oddities, Volume 2, available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Walmart.com, or through the Sunbury Press website at www.sunburypressstore.com. The Pennsylvania Oddities podcast is written, produced, and narrated by Marlon Bressy. 
Theme music composed by Marlon Bressy. Sound effects courtesy of freesound.org. Find the Pennsylvania Oddities podcast on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Breaker, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and anywhere else you find your favorite programs. New episodes on the 1st and 15th of every month.